Hello and welcome to Black Thoughts, a project by Podcasting is Praxis. I'm James, and it's been a while since I've done one of these. And I must admit, I feel a little bad about it. Not wholly bad. I did warn you all that I was going to be doing these episodes as and when the notion took me, as and when I had a thought that was worth discussing. But being honest, I did plan to do more of these than I have done so far. On a perhaps related note, I'm currently awaiting a meeting to see whether or not I have ADHD. It certainly would explain a lot. But for tonight, while I am enthusiastic and focused on the ideas that are running through my head, I want to talk about some things which have been weighing on my mind. True story, the episode I'm about to do with you, for you, is one that's been there since the beginning. I've always planned to do this, but I let David talk me into putting it on a shelf and waiting for a more opportune time, waiting for a moment where it would be really pertinent and relevant. And so I've waited and waited, but I can't wait anymore. Because you see, it's the middle of the night, and as is my want, I have been reading news stories. And I've been seeing lots of stories about transphobes and about misogynists, or as we would call them normally, trans-exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs, gender-critical women, or on the other side, incels, involuntary celibates. I've been reading stories about them. I've been wanting to talk about them for a while. So screw it. Sorry, David. We're talking about it now. Tonight, dear listener, I want to talk about status. And through talking about status, I want to talk about these two groups of people that seem as though they have nothing in common. To the casual eye. The difference between anarchism and other strains of left thought, such as Marxism, is that anarchism in my view, is fundamentally about power and how power is distributed through society. Marxism, to take a particular example, has a very well-developed critique of capitalism, but it is also a narrow critique. Marxism criticises the material arrangement of society under capitalism, the capitalist mode of production, as Marx called it and in doing so, criticises its effects on society and the human being. But to an anarchist eye, an anarchist's eye, to my eye, the problem with a lot of Marx's writing is that he ascribes uniquely to capitalism what actually lurks in potential in any form of arrangement of structure. Because the problem is not capital in and of itself, it's not the actual particular structures of oppression, but rather the way these structures establish the distribution of power in society. And that when power is concentrated and is able to be used with impunity to subjugate others, well, oppression results from it. No one can claim that the Soviet Union was a paradise. And in fact, if you want to go back to the history of the Russian Revolution, they started saying all power to the citizen Soviets, that is, councils of citizens drawn together to govern their own affairs, all power to the citizen Soviets. And yet in a short space of time, this changed to power being centralised under Lenin and under the National Party, which solely stripped powers away from these citizen councils, these citizen Soviets and made them subordinate to a central authority. That, if you will, is the original sin of the Russian Revolution. And anarchists criticised it, and anarchists were shot for it. Because to anarchists, to me, the real problem with how a society is structured lies in that structure enabling some people to use its power, the power of society, to oppress others. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, and a lot to unpack. And I don't want to get deep into theory. Really, truly, I don't. I know that sounds laughable to you. Please, stop laughing. But, for real, 
I'm interested in a, in a practical grasp of these things, and I think there's a way to illustrate what I want to talk about that doesn't involve getting deep into a whole series of textbooks and talking about the exchanges between anarchist traditions and Marxist traditions and getting into the arguments of the first meeting between the two, the first international. Like, let's not go down that route. Instead, let me walk you through a thought experiment. Let me take you through a series of questions and propose to you some answers that naturally follow. Let's start with a desert island. I want you to imagine that you've been on a cruise ship with a thousand other people. A terrible storm has come in and the ship has been wrecked off the coast of a desert island. And you and all the people on the ship make it safely onto the shores, but unfortunately the radio has been damaged and you were thrown off course and it's very unlikely that civilization is going to find you anytime soon. You're stuck there for a protracted period and will need to survive. Now, as you wade ashore with the others, someone points up at the cliffs and when you look up, to your surprise and perhaps horror, a message has been hewn on the rock. It says, your name, the name of you, the listener, should lead the people who have been shipwrecked. They are appointed leader. Well, if you're anything like me, that's going to cause a few problems right away. For one, hang on, wait a minute. So did someone intentionally sink the ship and write that on the cliff? And who wrote it? And what does that mean? And oh God, why is everyone looking at me? And, and what do I do about this? Total breakdown. But let's put all that aside. Let's pretend that the breakdown has gotten out of the way. And now there comes a question of how do you address this message on the cliffs? What do you do with it? Because it's you and a thousand other people and you all need to survive on this island. There needs to be some direction chosen, and the role of leadership is to help the people who follow the leader come to a direction to travel, agree on a, a, a consent together on a path they will take. Perhaps you run away from it and say, oh no, absolutely not me, don't know who wrote that, not interested at all. Or maybe you look round at the rest of people on the island and realise that, if not you, then who? Maybe for the best of reasons you go, okay, okay, I'll, I'll have a go of this. I will try to do my best. What happens next? Let me swap the position you're in. Imagine you're one of the thousand who washes up on the shore and sees this message of some other random guy being placed in charge. What are you thinking? If you're anything like me, you're probably going, did you have something to do with us being shipwrecked? But we'll put all that aside, okay? The second thought that will occur to you is, well, why that guy? Why him? Why them? Why her? Why? What says they should be in charge? Why should they lead? Moving back into the position of appointed leader, you have to answer that question. If you intend to lead these people, you have to actually answer that question. And how you go about answering it, there's really two ways you can try. Okay? Way number one is you can try and force them all to obey you. But there's one of you and a thousand of them. Good luck. Even if they were toddlers, I'm not sure you could force a thousand toddlers to do anything they didn't want to, right? But these are grown humans, grown adults for the most part. Maybe there's some children mixed in. We'll imagine that it's a broad cut of society, all sorts of different people, very diverse. How are you going to convince them all to follow you? If you want to try and use force, they're going to sit you down hard. Maybe you'll be able to knock down the first two, but, you know, when they finally drag you kicking and screaming along the beach, you got what you deserved for trying it. No, in practice, you're going to have to try and convince them, which is the other way. You're going to need to gain their consent to be led. And how you answer that question? Well, there are many different ways to do it. Let's imagine, just again, thought experiment, let's imagine you are a charismatic preacher, right? 
and coming to shore, you see the writing and just a light bulb goes off behind your eyes and you say, it is a message from God. And let's imagine that actually the group is religious and they all go, well, praise God, we have our appointed prophet who will lead us. Hey, you've suddenly got control and you've got power. And the basis of your power is their continued belief that you are appointed by God to lead them and that God put that notice on the cliff. Or let's imagine that you're a scientist and an engineer and you actually have a really strong grasp of the basics of building and construction. Well, then you turn to them and go, okay, I don't know who wrote that, but ignore it. There is one thing I can do. I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with how we build and how we irrigate and, and how we can actually make a settlement for ourselves. So I can plan one out and if we like it, then we can build it. How does that sound? There's another way to gain consent. Or maybe you're just a natural born politician and you say, listen, listen, everyone, it's okay. I hear your concerns. Let's go through and work out what we all want here because surely there's some things we have in common. I think we all want to survive tonight, right? So, okay, that writing on the cliff freaks me out, as I think it freaks out all of you. But let's be real, we need to live tonight. So just for today, I propose, and you gain their consent by degrees, working the room, bringing people on side, and slowly leading them. In all of these models, it rests on their consent. It rests on them going along with you. So there you go, force versus consent. When it's just you on your own, sorry, it's got to be consent. And you have to maintain it. You have to keep it going. You, it's not enough to simply gain consent. It can be withdrawn at any time. The people could turn on you. Let's say some of them start to turn on you. And let's, for the sake of argument, say they're totally wrong. Let's imagine that disease sweeps through the population. And some of the people who become diseased refuse to quarantine away from the rest. Topical, right? Let's imagine that's the case. What do you do about it? You don't have access to medicines. You don't, you know, have the tools you need to really treat everyone and to defend everyone. The only thing you can do is actually engage in quarantine and hope they get better. What do you do? How do you prevent them from engaging in destructive behaviours that will hurt the people you are leading? Heavy as the head that wears a crown, right? Well, in this situation, Maybe you can persuade some other people that they need to be kept quarantined. Maybe you can get a group together to keep them locked up until they recover. You've just invented the police when you start doing that, because you're using force to keep at bay people who are engaging in destructive habits that would hurt the whole. Of course, I'm being reductive. You haven't actually invented the police. The police is something much worse than this. What you've actually just put together is you've put together a group of people who are attempting to defend the populace. That's not the same thing as the police, but it can become the police, and we'll talk more about that later. In this scenario where you're trying to maintain control, for whatever reason, maybe, as I said, you've got the very best intentions and a fair person would say, well, yeah, that's right and proper. Or maybe you're a mad despot who is trying to cling to power, right? In whatever scenario, when you're trying to maintain control, eventually you will have to ask yourself a question. Just how many of these people do I actually need on my side to get shit done? I mean, you've all encountered this, right, in your friend groups or whatever. If you all want to do a thing, there is like a critical mass of people who you need, and then the thing happens, regardless of how the others really feel about it. Maybe they'll stay home, or maybe they'll just go, ah, oh, fuck it, I'll go along with the group then. There is a critical mass of people. How big is that mass? You might be inclined to say, well, it's, it's just, you know, slightly more than 50%, right? 50 plus one. So uh, maybe in this case, uh, 501 of the thousand people, if they go along with me, then I'm in charge. But in practice, no, you're not. In practice, no, you're not. Because if you have 501 versus 499, then what you've actually got is two warring camps. Now, they might not come to actual blows, they might not actually attack each other, but they're going to be going off doing their own thing. And if they come into conflict, then it's going to need to be negotiated and settled between them as different groups. In practice, to maintain control of a lot, you need a higher proportion. And the proportion you need actually scales. And it scales basically 
directly with the percentage of the population which are able-bodied and capable of working and doing things, or, more darkly, the percentage of the population which are best able to wield force against the remainder. If you're looking at this group of a thousand people, and you notice, well, a whole bunch of these are pensioners, who are really frail, a whole bunch of these are children, and then there's actually a group of strong men and women, who are maybe only 300 or so of them, but they're the ones who basically do all the work and who actually make things happen, those 300 people are the people you need on side. Right? They're the people who will actually do the work and who can make the others go along with them if they have to. Parents can scold their children, they can set their elders down, you know. It's just a pragmatic reality. If you control the able-bodied population, you control the population. If they are following you, you are leading, and the others have very little they can say about it. Let me convince you further. I want you to imagine that among this group of a thousand, there is a guy with a submachine gun. <laughs> no one knows how he found the submachine gun and how he has all the ammunition for it, but he's got a submachine gun and he's a really good shot with it. And he's very good at holding on to that submachine gun. You're not able to take it off him. In this scenario where you're trying to put together a society and remain on top, it's crucially important that guy with a submachine gun is on your side, right? Because otherwise, your rule, your leadership can come to a short, sharp end at the barrel of a gun. This is because that submachine gun is what we call a force multiplier. It takes his inherent ability to wield force against others and really cranks it right up disproportionately. One person with a machine gun can kill and subdue far many more people. Now, I know in practice, in practice, right, one person with a submachine gun is really not going to be enough to rule a thousand people. Might be enough to keep the people quarantined though, right? Might be enough to keep a small percentage of the group, you know, away from the others on pain of death, right? Understanding this, understanding that force can be used and that different parts of the population are going to have greater or lesser capacities to wield it, you begin to understand how societies are structured as they are. Because I want to take you now back to the dawn of time, to the first upright human beings. And I want to walk you through a scenario that really underlies our society and how it has come about. You're the leader of a troop of early humans, and you're struggling to maintain that control for the best of reasons, let's say, or for the worst of reasons. You're struggling to maintain that control in a position of ignorance, too. You don't have knowledge of the world. Everything is threatening. Everything is scary. If it displeases the spirits of the forest, then a tiger may come and eat your children. You don't know, right? You need to maintain this control. So you look around your campfire one night and you ask yourself that question. Who do I need on side? Now, as it happens, there's broadly two kinds of human beings. There's some who are generally narrower-hipped, who have penises, and who have a lot of upper body strength that they're able to leverage because their hips are narrower. And then you have those who are wider-hipped, who have uteruses who are able to birth children for the most part, and who proportionally have less upper body strength and less ability to wield it because their centre of gravity is different. And unknown to you, because they have lower testosterone, which is really a kind of steroid on steroids, compared to the others. You even have names for these two different groupings, labels of convenience. You call them men and women. Now, at this point in time, it really is just a shorthand to describe roughly that kind of characteristic I've just described. It's shorthand for sexual characteristics. It doesn't mean anything else right now. You're, they're all equal. They're all more or less the same. They, they, they interact with each other differently. They have different reproductive roles, but we're saying they're broadly equal in this early trip, right? 
man and woman just means the group who engage in sexuality in one way and the group who engage in it in another. And it means the group who tend to be hairy in certain places and have certain uh, physical advantage in conflict versus others. There's a sexual dimorphism and men and women is basically there as shorthand to describe where someone falls on that sexual dimorphic kind of line. And it's not absolute. And I wanted to step back to the present for a moment just to make crystal clear that obviously it is shorthand. It's just an abstract and it came about in a time of ignorance. It came about in a time where what you see was roughly what you tried to make of it, right? There was no science, there was no ability to examine the genetics of a person. There was no ability to really consider the implications of the random person who is born with multiple sets of genitalia or who is born with certain characteristics that are perhaps a bit more androgynous or similar. You know, it didn't take these things into account. It was a generalization, a crude generalization, but a functional one. The science tells us that actually when you get down, the idea of sex is itself a shorthand construct and the reality is much more messy, but does have to have, it does tend to, if you will, group into two different groupings, but that's not absolute and shouldn't be treated as though it's absolute. That's what the science actually says. If you don't believe that, I'm honestly not going to take the time to convince you on this episode. You can go do your own research. What I've said holds true. Anyway. Going back to that early scenario, you're looking around your campfire and you're seeing these broadly two different types of people. And you have to ask yourself, who do I need? And the answer is, is for ones who are most physically capable. It's for ones who we call men. How do you get them on side? Maybe you can make appeals to them, but, you know, they're not guaranteed to work. And everyone in this trip is more or less equal, right? You know, just because you want the men on side, what's, what's the way to do it? How can you make sure you get them and that they will flock to your banner in a way that, you know, you perhaps can't get everyone else? Well, the way you essentially do this is you start to set up a, a distinction that is more than just label of convenience. You start to tell the men a story. You start to tell them, listen, you're stronger. You're more powerful. That means you're better. They can give birth to children. That means they should be the ones to look after it while you do other things. Wouldn't you like them to be the ones who are spending the time raising the children? And if they're raising the children, then maybe they should sit at home. Um, maybe they're meant to do all the camp work while you do the more interesting work, which you are stronger and better suited for. Wouldn't that be good? Maybe this is the way things should be ordered. Maybe the gods made us this way that men should be out doing the big, important work while women stay at home and raise the children. Because men are strong, but women are weak. Men are hard, but women are soft. Men are active, they're doers, they're hunters. Women are passive, they're receivers, they're acceptors, they're supports. Women should really be there to support and serve you when you think about it, shouldn't they? Shouldn't they? My God says they should. My God says that women were made from the ribs of men and were created as companions and supports to men. Wouldn't you like to make this true? Wouldn't you like them to just stop arguing and get in line? We can make them. Now that's an elaborate example of what was probably a longer term process. But ultimately, it traces back to that simple idea. To maintain control, you need those who are best able to project physical force. In the early days, that was basically the masculine, the male of the species. And so, it was necessary to establish gender roles as a means to differentiate, otherize, and ultimately control the weaker. When you do that, Suddenly, you only need to control half the people after all, because it happens to be the half that can easily subdue the other half. And it's grim, but let's be real, it's what misogyny ultimately is reducible to. It's this idea that women are there to serve and for the convenience of men. 
and there's a lot in it that men can find alluring and attractive. There's a lot in it which speaks to their needs being preferenced, and speaks to their selfishness. This is the fundamental dichotomy on which society was built between masculine and feminine. Now, how it came about, I mean, I believe it was a much more drawn-out process with a lot of twos and throws and religious and irrational elements and poetic and self-justifying narrative telling. But ultimately, this is what came about. Women were subjugated by men. And it makes a certain degree of sense. It does. I put it to you that this simple case is illustrative of the larger one that's accrued over time. Because what are we really describing here? We're describing a power dynamic where one group of people is superior to another, where one group of people has a superior status to another. This is what status is. Status is the ability to assign people such that they occupy a particular abstract power relationship. It's time we had a chat about status. Going back to our desert island, and to these thousand people that you're looking to lead, and by degrees coming to rule, the application of force is necessary to keep them in line. That's what makes the difference between rulership and leadership. A ruler can compel, can force, if not by their hand directly, then by the hand of those who follow them. To do this, you have to set up a hierarchy of status, some who have power afforded to them that they have reason to wield their power on your behalf. Essentially, if you want someone to do something for you, you have to give them a reason. And the ability to push around those weaker than them, those who are assigned lower status, is a seductive poison. It's a thing that many people find alluring and compelling. And our society encourages them to do so. It encourages all of us to seek status, to seek power, to a lesser or greater degree. On this desert island, if you're going to govern these people, and if you are going to rely on the particularly able-bodied portion, you need to come up with a narrative that accords them more status than the others, because that status can be used as a justification for the enforcement of the hierarchy that conveys that status. It becomes a mutually reinforcing thing, you know? You are in charge and have this status because you're best placed to use this status to preserve this structure that says you're in charge and gives you this status, right? And in this way, in a more abstract sense, you can understand class dynamics, you know? What is a class but people who occupy a certain status within a hierarchy of power, who come together to preserve that hierarchy and their status within it? It's not really complicated stuff when you drill down into it. On this desert island, if you wish to rule, you must split people apart. But perhaps, actually, it would be more functional to layer it, to have layers of status. Some people who are at the top, some people who are in the middle, and some people who are on the bottom. And to encourage competition to move between levels of status. That's a cleaner way to do it, right? I mean, you could enslave half the population with the other half, potentially, maybe, but that's perhaps prone to rebellion, is prone to disruption, and maybe it's not straightforward. I mean, here's a little truth. The reason that racial slavery has been a thing is because race is a convenient demarcation between different types of people. Because when you really get down to it, right, what is race? Race is a series of cultural signifiers that are attached to a skin colour. And it's, it's a cultural construct in exactly the same way as gender is. Um, it's a construct that's based in an, a series of observable features, but it's really not absolute, right? What has come to mean in our modern society is taken on other meanings. And I'm not to say race doesn't matter. I'm just saying that the origin of this thing, of ethnicity, of race, of gender, 
of all these labels we ascribe, they are, to a larger or greater extent, somewhat arbitrary. Their meaning is socially derived by what we've put on these labels, by the things we've built on top of them. From a perspective of establishing a hierarchy, though, race is dead simple, because, let me, let me put it to you. Say you have a society that's built of those who dominate and those who are dominated. If you cannot easily distinguish between them, how is this whole system of oppression easily maintained? It's not. In fact, the easier it is for someone to like put on a different hat and suddenly be treated as though they're a different status, the less stable that hierarchy of domination is. Because it means people could just pretend that they're all the higher status and whoops, there's no one to dominate and then it all kind of starts to come undone. In order to preserve a hierarchy of dominance, the crude way is to make it clear that there are distinctions between those who are in control and those who are not. The original one is gender, because that's, you know, again, easy secondary sex characteristics, and it just so happens that one of them is, on average, stronger than the other half and better able to project force. It's, like, almost ready-made. But when you, like, you know, look at more advanced forms of hierarchical oppression, being able to look at someone and go, oh, they are darker-skinned, that means they should be enslaved versus they are whiter-skinned, that means they should be an enslaver. That is a very simple shorthand. And in fact, uh, one of the things that the Roman Empire struggled with was the porousness between it, you know, the slaves that were taken and the free men and then their masters, ultimately. It led to a certain destabilization because Roman civilization was built on slavery. When the slavery proportion of society became more and more pronounced, and the borders between those who were enslaved and those who enslaved them became more and more fluid, that's when the emperors and others had to start implementing rules, saying, oh, you're only allowed to free this many slaves per year. And so, you know, the system was preserved to an extent and it tumbled on. It's easier in the simple case if you can just point to specific differentiators which are immediately obvious. It becomes harder the more subtle the differences between peoples. And to a lesser or greater extent, you then have to start inventing status signifiers, or shall I say class shibboleths? I talked about them on last episode, this idea that there's, there's certain signs, indicators that indicate an in-group versus an out-group, the people who should be on top versus those who should be on the bottom. And these can be culturally constructed. If you know the right people, if you speak with the right accent, if you belong to the right class, then you should be on top, and it's easier to distinguish you. And so too, material conditions can do this, you know? You need a nice suit to be taken seriously as a member of the middle class, for example. These are the means by which hierarchies of oppression are maintained, by, by creating clear divisions in status. But if you want to be really fancy with it, then you certainly allow a certain degree of status competition. True story. If you have a, a society that's based on just absolute oppression, where one class you know, really oppresses another, then you're going to deal with rebellions from time to time, and it's going to be a long-rolling issue. The Spartans had a lot of trouble with this in their ancient civilization, which was very clearly divided between those who were Spartan and those who were enslaved. Perhaps a cleverer way of doing it is you actually allow there to be many lower orders, and you allow limited movement between those lower orders while maintaining a clear division between lower and upper. In essence, you allow people to compete to cease to be working class and to become middle class. Work hard, one day you may be middle class. You may one day have a comfortable life. And you might even allow limited entry into the upper class for people who are particularly useful. Again, it comes down to the question of who do you need. But by allowing hierarchies of oppression, where one class can oppress another, can oppress another, can oppress another, and where these classes are clearly defined and distinct, but limited movement is permitted between them in very ritualized forms, you build a system which is more likely to maintain itself. Because if there's a chance that you might climb up into a higher echelon, then you have an incentive to keep those echelons intact. Because it could be you. It could be you. And if you're going to work hard and be that person, you don't want someone else to undermine it. And if you go back to the first episode where I talk about class, there's examples of how this plays out in our modern British society, and in other societies that are modern as well. This structure allows the oppression to be maintained. But it's not 
it's not exactly clear at times. You can't really sit down and sketch out a very simple pyramid and go, this type of person's on top, then this is below them, then these people are below them, then these people are below them. It's not quite that simple. There are, in fact, many different axes of division and oppression. Male versus female. White versus black or minority ethnic of any kind. Um, you know, straight versus gay. English versus Irish? We could go on. There are historical and contemporary ones. There's religious distinctions as well. My faith versus the other faith. Even within religions, you would get, um, you know, pretty serious divisions. For example, caste. This idea that people are arraigned by the will of the gods and are divided out into different castes that don't move between each other. Um, you know, it's, it's an old idea. And in modern global capitalism, all of these are kind of mixed together. And what determines whether someone is higher or lower in status isn't simple. It can't be reduced simply to money. You know, if it could, then the glass ceiling wouldn't be a thing. In actual fact, it's about these different axes of traditional oppressions aligning against each other. That's how you determine whether someone is greater or lower status than someone else. And to give you a worked example of it, the white woman who screams at a black man working as a barista and who got their coffee wrong is an example of status disparity where, in fact, the white woman has more status than the black man who's working as a service worker for her. These are examples of how status, in many ways, is negotiated and fluid in society and can change over time. Some professions are accorded certain status, and then perhaps they fall away while others become more prominent. For example, teachers used to be very, very well respected, because they were more in demand, and you know, for various other reasons. Now, increasingly less so. Academics used to be more respected, now increasingly less so. It isn't all a matter of wealth. It isn't all a matter of that absolute power of capital. There are social components to it. And again, see the episode I did in class for more information on this. To maintain a system of oppression requires that status be accorded and that the system that accords that status be maintained by those with status. And once you understand this... Once this model starts to become clear, you then have a lens, an anarchist's lens, through which you can look at curious phenomena in modern society. Let's start talking about transphobes and involuntary celibates. Transphobes tend to be known under a few different labels today. The first one was TERF, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist, and described this idea of a kind of woman, right, who was all for women's liberation, but not for trans liberation. Trans-exclusionary, they excluded trans people, but they were radical feminists in that they wanted more power for women, right? Today they disdain that label, even though they used to embrace it, and prefer the term gender critical increasingly as meaning that they are critical of ideas about gender that are being advanced by certain parts of the community who are say queer or trans or just questioning in one way or another of the orthodoxies of gender they are gender ideology critical gender critical these are interesting people they're interesting people because to a naive view you would think well Women are oppressed, right? Within society, misogyny exists. It is a thing. It's an axis of oppression that tells women they're only allowed to be certain things and behave in certain ways. So surely, surely they should join together with their fellow oppressed and rise up to challenge this system. That's the naive position. And if your interest is in taking down the system, it's actually kind of correct. I mean, objectively, that is what we want. Solidarity between all oppressed peoples to tear down the system that oppresses them. However, if you take the status view into this, you can understand more clearly what's happening. These are women who have occupied a certain status position that has assured them, listen, you're a woman and you're subjugated compared to men, but you're not like those weirdo freaks, the gays or the lesbians, 
or those strange transsexuals or transgender people. They've been told they're superior to them. They've been told they're superior to them. They've been given status over them. You get some feminists who want to tear down the structure of oppression that keeps them in their place. But you get other feminists who don't really want that. What they want is for themselves to be on an equal status footing with men. That's what they want. But the rest of it, the rest of the people beneath them, they, they don't want to be on their level. No, they want to be above someone. And God forbid, they don't want to be dragged down to their level. They don't want to experience oppression like those people experience oppression. Thank you very much. They want to improve their conditions and they don't want their conditions to be worsened. And fear, fear that their status will be lessened, that their conditions will be worsened. That can make them do very strange things. On some level, I put it to you that your gender critical woman, your, your trans exclusionary radical feminist, they're really concerned about the loss of status. They're worried that if the boundaries of gender become blurred, then rather than there being gender liberation, they're worried that essentially the little protected positions of power they are afforded within society, the white woman privilege to scream at a barista, is going to be revoked. They're worried about the loss of status and power. They're worried about not mattering as much. They're worried about not benefiting from the parts of the misogynist narrative that are a little bit cushy for them. Because let's be real, there are some. There are some, right? Misogyny is a give and take. For the system to be upheld, again, remember, it helps if there's some sweeteners in it. And there's a very simple example of one. Women in most modern societies are not drafted the same as men. That's an advantage. Um, there's various others. They are slight, but they are there. And some of them are to do with, for example, the assumption of aggression. If you're a woman and you complain against a man, it's more likely to be taken seriously that in an altercation they were the aggressor. Not always, actually. Not overly reductive. Again, these benefits are very slight. But my point is, my point is, they do exist. There are some there, some small silver linings, some slivers of status that can be used. And predominantly, they tend to be enjoyed more, enjoyed more by white women. There is a reason that white women as a whole, traditionally, their brand of feminism hasn't really been what we would call intersectional. Their, their idea of how to combat the uh, various injustices perpetuated on them doesn't align with also accepting the injustices that are put on their sisters of different ethnicity. They're very much concerned with their own problems and their own status and preserving it. This is what drives the trans-exclusionary radical feminist. It's that fear. It's that fear of status loss, of losing some purchase, of losing some privilege. And also, to be honest, maybe it's fear that it will damage their attempt to get on an even footing with men. Or maybe it's just, on some cases, just really callous. They just want to be on the same foot as men, ruling and uh, oppressing others, and they just don't give a shit about people who they view as being slightly weird or different, or in some way beneath them. Maybe some of them are actually afraid that the dissolution of gender, of femininity, of being a woman, as this unique thing, this structured thing, this special thing, maybe they are afraid that losing this will in some way remove a core component of what they have been taught to identify as and how they understand themselves. And they don't want to give this up. They don't want to give it up because how else do they understand themselves but as a woman, but as a victim of oppression against men? If suddenly there are no such things as men and women, if this all becomes blurry and fluid, then how do they explain their oppression? And lacking other real critical frameworks about capitalism and about, say, power dynamics like I've explained to you, what else can we do? What else can we do? but worry about this, but get angry and confused and lash out over it. React out of fear. 
that lashing out, that fear, that anger, that resentment, also describes another group. Let's talk a little bit about incels. Incels, involuntary celibates, are predominantly men, though not only men, though usually men, who want to have sex and get laid, but involuntarily, they can't. Now, if that were all it was, then it would be really straightforward to solve. And you actually see online, you know, several incel communities with the guys in them will say, ah, oh, well, you know, I've tried a sex worker and it's not fixed anything. Usually in much cruder language than that, let's be fair, but, you know. It's not really about the sex. It's not about the sex. It's not about getting laid. Rather, it's about what that represents. Because there is this narrative in society, the flip side of misogyny. Misogyny treats women basically as property, as uh, property at worst, uh, you know, indentured servants at best, who exist to fulfill the needs of men. On the other hand, it tells men that they have the right to this, that this is to be expected, that they are owed this by society, that every man should have a woman, a woman who takes care of their needs. And let's be real, as part of a structure under misogyny, men are deprived of a meeting of certain needs. Men aren't allowed to show emotion or weakness or really experience love in that tender and non-sexual way. Men are actually taught that, you know, to do that, to engage in that behaviour, well, that's, you know, gay, that's, you know, effeminacy, that's homosexuality, that's wrong, that's bad. Women are allowed to cry and hug and touch each other, but men are not. Men are not. In fact, the only way a man's allowed to get it is from his woman. She's allowed to, to provide these services to him, these emotional services to him. And men, speaking as someone who was raised to be a man, are desperately lonely of that. Because everyone needs human touch. Everyone needs human contact. And if the one way you're allowed to get it while still being a man is to have a woman, then that takes on a whole new dimension. It's something you need, you yearn for, you want. But, but, women are given limited choice in society. They're not chattel slaves like they were at some points in history. We allow women to choose their partners. So now there's an element of competition. And now these men who desperately want this thing and who have been brought up on these narratives that they're owed this thing, suddenly they have to compete for it. Suddenly they have to find some way to gain it. But remember, they've been taught that women aren't really people, that they're there to serve their needs, that they're not alive in the same way as men are on some fundamental level, that they're there to be used by men, they're not like men. Men are active, women are passive, etc. What this means in practice is that, to be honest with you, women are a kind of status symbol to men. Can't get a woman, you're a loser. And you desperately want a woman because you need a woman to give you these things, but you can't get a woman because you're filled with this poisonous misogyny. And so many women are realising that actually it is poisonous and they don't have to think of themselves like that or put up with that, that there are other options. That actually, how about they have a partner who sees them as a person and genuinely loves them? Against this, men who've been raised with these faulty, horrible narratives telling them that they must have a woman to have meaning and that implying that women are there and are property and not knowing how to relate to them as people, but desperately needing them for their own validation and emotional fulfillment and status fulfillment. To these men, the absence of women, the absence of what a woman represents, of what sex with a woman represents, because remember, women are there to serve men's needs, and what need is most played up in our society? It's the sexual need. The absence of that means the man himself is a loser. They are involuntarily celibate. They are involuntarily deprived of a status signifier which they need on an emotional level, on a material and status level, and fundamentally, ultimately, on a self-defining psychological level. Very soon, that turns to hatred, bitterness, and resentment because many of them then start to see the woman as actively depriving them of their position. And so they become, you know, right-wing and pretty horrific in their views. And especially when they come together and they get to form an echo chamber, when they get to share their experiences and play up on their worst anxieties and fears, 
and it gets to run rampant, suddenly then, well, then that status anxiety consumes them. Let's put it all together. It's time we talk about TERFs and incels using the same language. What do these two groups have in common? They're groups that are threatened by the reordering of status hierarchies. And they are reacting to this change, kicking back, trying to preserve a structure which should have benefited them. They are playing out a script which no longer in any meaningful way upholds their world, but they're desperately trying to cling to it. Some of them, for reasons which are perhaps understandable, ideas of, of identity crisis, who am I, what am I? If I am not a woman, as I understand womanhood to be, then who and what am I, and how do I explain my place in this world? If I am not a man, as I understand masculinity and what it means to be, then who am I, and what is my place in this world? Some of them are coming to it from that. Some of them are coming to it from a kind of callous self-promotion of, of wanting to enjoy the benefits of a thing and not release them. There's many different reasons, but they all come from the same place. They all identify a different kind of status threat. And some of these status threats are, well, they're pretty twisted. Involuntary celibates tend to, on the whole, gain a festering hatred of women, and they come up with all sorts of increasingly creative derogatory ways to refer to them. But what they really hate, what they really hate, is the fact that the women are choosing to pass them up, that they, in many cases, have the choice to pass them up. They're hating that change in status that says that suddenly women are their equals, because they know no other way to interact with women other than to treat them as their subordinates in a status hierarchy. But women's liberation has challenged that, and the deprivations of capitalism have worsened, and they've not been given any alternate narratives through which to understand themselves, and they're clinging to this notion of, na of this nascent masculinity that has been taught to them since they're a child. And remember, the emotional needs are real and there, and they're deprived of any other method of really engaging and seeing them fulfilled. It's not as simple as sex. It's that sex to a man in this culture is emblematic of many other things. And on the flip side, the TERFs, well, they're reacting to this demolition of their own status through the form of a dissolution of the gender boundaries, and the idea that actually, women can become men, well, that doesn't get as much feature as the idea of men becoming women. Because then men are taking from them, intruding into this limited status space that they've been told they're allowed. And worse than that, it's, you know, all the, the homophobic and queerphobic and transphobic elements of this rise up and bubble up as well. They are dark reflections of each other. It's relatively status-benefited middle-class women grappling with status change relating to the gender structure, and relatively lower-class, frankly, men grappling with very much the same thing, just from a different direction. It's the destabilization of the commodification of capitalism and its restructuring of these status relationships to evolve them, to change them, because under modern capitalism, who is useful continually evolves, and who is useless continually evolves. And the simple truth is that modern capital has decided that actually women are more useful as workers than as, you know, stay-at-home mothers, than as men's property. And simultaneously, it's also decided that a large swath of our population is actually just useless. That actually there are workers who are surplus to requirements. And people are grappling with this in a different ways. The women who tend to be gender critical, it's been commented on that they tend to come from better to do middle class kind of echelons. That's because they're really dealing with the anxiety of the middle class as an echelon being dismantled. And a lot of that's getting channeled through these anxieties of gender status. Similarly, on the other side, you've got the working class man who's suddenly finding he's got no future ahead of him. And he's turning to involuntary celibacy as an ideology to try and explain how they're being deprived of a good life. 
If only women weren't liberated, there'd be so much more available to them. And these aren't universal, because there are people in the lower classes who, you know, they take into them the gender criticality, uh, the turfism, and there's those in the middle classes who are equally just, you know, deprived of all that they were promised and competing for too few positions. You know, it's not absolute. Much like the very concept of male and female, they're really just labels of convenience, but they do describe an observable trend. And the particulars of that trend are rooted in the particular of the individual and the individual relationship to status. But they are ultimately about the same thing. Turfs and incels derive from that same place, that same status anxiety, that same struggle. And it's an understandable struggle because, ultimately, this is what we've been taught. This is a world we've been raised in. They've been given implicit narrative structures explaining their position in the world, their rights and privileges, how they understand themselves in relationship to others. And now those narratives, they change or are threatened or they come apart. And how are they to know themselves if not by what they have been told they are, if not by society? New stories are needed, new narratives, new ways of understanding who we are, and the struggles we are going through. If I can get one last thought in. Fundamentally, the narrative that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels spun about the oppression of society was a narrative that existed in a particular time and a particular place, and it was keyed to be well-received by particular useful people talking about the proletariat, discounting and not caring for the lumpen proletariat who weren't potentially useful from a revolutionary perspective. And similarly, there's a reason that the old orthodox Marxism tends to put a lot of emphasis on men and have a bit of misogyny woven into it. And similarly, a fair degree of racism, because again, it's about who is most useful to call to a movement. But the broader narratives of Marxism and the broader analysis that it puts to the world, it was of a time and place, and others have worked to try and update it. But until it can grapple with this broader idea that the material structures are only one component in a broader socio-material hierarchy of oppression, until we can look at it from this perspective and develop a new language by which to talk about these problems, until then, People on the left who use the old language, who use the old frameworks, are going to really struggle to get people to take them up and to take seriously the ideas that they really should benefit from. If you wish to solve the problem of the gender-critical TERFs and the involuntary celibate incels, what you really need to solve is the problem of self-conception being entirely invested in status hierarchy within society. If you can come up with a story to tell people that they can tell to themselves about themselves, that explains themselves outside these old, reductive narratives, then you have the potential to free them, not just from the material bondage, but from their own oppression of themselves. And that's the basis for all other liberation. I guess that's it for this time. Hopefully this was worth the wait. And hopefully it won't be quite as long until the next Black Thought. I can't say when it will be. I don't want to overpromise. But what I do promise is that when I bring these things forward, they'll at least be worth taking up a bit of your time. They'll at least be worth a listen. That's it for tonight. This was a project by Podcasting is Praxis. The music, as ever, is by RJD2 and used with permission. Take care. Thank you.